Our first reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. The title of this passage is The Woman Caught Caught in Adultery. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making, and making her stand before them all, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Our second reading is from Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. Now Lot went up out of Zor and settled in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the world. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him so that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her, with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she rose. On the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him so that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and he didn't know when she lay lay down with him or when she rose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. Thank you, Libby. It's kind of difficult to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, after a reading like that, isn't it? Just wait till next week's. On Monday evening this week, I went to the launch of a new book entitled Confronting Religious Violence, a Counter-Narrative, 
And in this book, Jonathan Sachs, who's the former chief rabbi, talks about the way in which, as humans, we are shaped by the stories that we tell ourselves. This is true both at an individual level and also at a collective or communal level. So he says, and this is a quote from Jonathan Sachs, we come to know who we are by discovering the story or stories of which we are a part. We come to know who we are by discovering the story or stories of which we are a part. This is because, he says, we are narrative creatures. We respond to and are defined by the stories that shape us. Who we are in the present, for both good and bad, is the product of the stories that we've taken deep within ourselves. This is true for us personally, and it is true for us communally. At a personal level, the stories of our families will have a huge effect on the kinds of people that we are. And an understanding of the legacy of our family systems can be a vital part of learning to understand who we are and why we are the way we are. I'm just about to go on a two-day course tomorrow and Tuesday, which picks up again next month, looking at uh, family systems therapy and its impact on church leaders. And one of the things I've had to prepare for this is a detailed family tree showing all of my relationships with the various people in my family, uh, some of whom I'm estranged from, some of whom I have conflictual relationships with, uh, and we're going to be discussing that in the group to work out how my background then affects the way I am as a, as a minister in, in my adult life. So uh, I, I'll either come back traumatised or changed. We'll see what happens. Um, I think that the dramatic rise in people taking the Ancestry DNA test, coupled with the huge popularity of genealogical research, TV programmes such as Who Do You Think You Are?, that says it all, really, doesn't it? Who do you think you are? Is defined by your genetic heritage, your family of origin. All of this speaks of a growing desire in our culture for us to construct personalised stories that give us meaning and identity. So a few weeks ago, I got the result of my ancestry DNA test. Here it is. Uh, it turns out that I'm 18% Norwegian, 23% Irish slash Scottish, and 59% English or Northwestern European, with particular emphases on the Midlands. Apparently, this is a very English profile. And whilst it may account for my hair and skin colour, I don't think I can blame my home county's accent on my DNA. I suspect that my upbringing in Kent and my attendance at the Judd School had something to do with that. Did you know I was once identified to the school I came from by somebody just by my accent? I was in Sheffield at the time. And she said, I know what school you went to. I said, you don't. She said, you do, you went to Judd. I said, how do you know? She said, I knew people who went there. You speak like them. <laughs> it was true. I've never noticed any residual ability for me to be able to speak Viking or Glaswegian coming through, despite my DNA being fairly strongly Glaswegian, possibly, or Viking. So whilst all this is very interesting, it doesn't really tell me who I am, does it? But I could, if I chose to, use the story of my DNA or my family tree research to construct a narrative for me to live by. 
I could use a DNA profile like this to become an English nationalist. Or not, as the case may be. In fact, part of me has wondered whether being 23% Irish and having the middle name of Patrick might actually qualify me for an Irish passport in a post-Brexit world, but I, I suspect that may be wishful thinking. There's a wonderful video on the internet of people getting their DNA results and discovering that their genes don't match their perception of their identity. So the English nationalist in the video rather delightfully discovers that he's mostly German. And others are similarly shocked by the way their stories of origin are altered by the story encoded in their DNA. And in a world of ever greater fragmentation, when nations, states, and federations are increasingly under threat, the importance of these stories we tell ourselves will become ever more important. At a communal level, the importance of stories for understanding religious violence is that the way different religious communities relate to each other will determine the stories, will be determined, sorry, by the stories that they tell themselves. So if I think that God wants my tribe to go to war with a different tribe, that's going to be determined by the founding stories, the master narratives, as they're sometimes called, that our different tribes have been shaped by. And these master narratives, these mythological founding stories, are often to do with issues such as the ownership of the land. And if you want to understand the tensions between Israel and Palestine, part of what you need to do, as well as a bit of recent history, is to look long and hard at the founding stories of the two nations. The historic claim that each believes they have to the same bit of land. And the way they tell their ancient stories in the present to justify and shape who they are will then affect the way in which they feel at liberty to act in the present day. Some of us are about to go to Israel and the Palestinian territories, so uh, this is a, an issue that some of us will be, I think, gaining a greater understanding on over the next few weeks. And, and this, you know, th th these two maps here showing the, the difference of who had which bit of land at which point in history, this is nothing new. In fact, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, gives us many stories that would fit this category of counter-narrative, of master-narrative. Who's, who's who has which bit of land at which point? Who's arguing against whom over ownership of the land? The ancient Near East, the time of the origin of many of these stories, was a land of tribal warfare as people fought over poverty, they fought over property, they fought over trade routes. And different tribes would come together in alliances for a while and then they'd split apart again. And their tribal stories, their master narratives would amalgamate and fracture to express these changing affiliations. So I've drawn one of these for you here. This is the uh, family tree, if you like, of, you see, Abraham at the top left, and Isaac, and Jacob. So if you want to follow the, the path of Israel, who you go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, bang, you've got a history. Now, of course, what's actually going on here is you've got different tribes with different tribal ancestors, different patriarchs, 
as those tribes get together, they amalgamate their stories into family stories in order to express some of their political unity, or, and, and then they might also try and express why they hate other people. And it's in this context that we need to hear stories such as our passage for this morning about Lot and his daughters in the cave. It's a story which is preserved within the scriptures of Israel, who are, according to their master narrative, the descendants of Jacob. So if we take a look at this genealogy of Jacob's family, we start to get a picture of how they understood their relationship to the various other tribal groups in their area in the ancient world. And here we see that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, is the brother of Esau, who is the ancestor of the Edomites. He's also a cousin to the 12 sons of Ishmael. Uh, it, they are the famously hairy bunch of Ishmaelites from uh, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you know that song, to whom Jacob's sons sell Joseph into slavery. Jacob is also the second cousin to Ammon and Moab, who are the founding patriarchs of the Ammonites and the Moabites, who are Israel's ancient enemies. And it it's the story of Ammon and Moab that we meet in this incestuous story of Lot and his daughters in the cave above Zoar. So, at one level, the Israelites telling this rather horrific story of the origin of uh, Ammon and Moab, the point is that the Ammonites and the Moabites are quite literally a bunch of bastards. That was not a phrase I thought I'd ever say in a sermon, but it seems to work. Although, of course, not so alienated that one of the books of the Hebrew Bible couldn't be named after a Moabitess, because one of the descendants of Moab is Ruth, who gets written back into the story of Israel, not only through the events of the book of Ruth, but actually as no less than one of the named ancestors of the great mythic King David. So you can see, can't you, how there's like, we hate the Ammonites and the Moabites, they're, Moabites, they're the children of incest. But also then later on you've got Moab's great-great-great-great-granddaughter Ruth getting written back into the story and she becomes an ancestor of David. And of course you fast forward that through to the Christian tradition and she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Here's the complexity of all of this. These relationships between people groups which are cast as a family tree. I'm just going to say it, that, you know, this is not a historical family tree, this is mythological history. But it's not clear cut. Enemies become friends, friends become enemies, tribal alliances form, then they fail, and the stories that the people tell reflect this. As uh, John Rogerson puts it, one of the purposes of Genesis was to link these ancestors ancestors together by means of genealogy and story, and then plot this unified story onto a larger genealogical canvas. To call this fiction is not to describe it as deceit or fraud. Genealogies for ancient Israel, as for many other peoples, were not a type of history. Rather, they were an expression of a need to plot existing social realities onto a chart that explains them in terms of a comprehensive scheme. And of course we need to remember that these stories were not written down at the time in the form that we now have them preserved. There is a thousand years or more of oral tradition from the time when these stories are set 
to the point where they get written down in the 6th and 7th century BC. That'd be like me now, for the first time, writing down the oral traditions of the Dark Ages, which has been passed on from generation to generation. It's taken shape over the years. But is this all we can learn from this story? That it's a master narrative to define the Israelites as the true heirs of Abraham over and against the Moabites and the Ammonites? Is this really where we just have to take this troubling story and say, well, there we go, it's contextual. That's why they told this story and draw a line under it. I, I think not. I think there is more to be gleaned here. If you were here a few weeks ago, you would have heard Luke preaching on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in his sermon, he helpfully addressed the way in which this story has been incorrectly used to condemn homosexuality. He reminded us that it's actually a story of the abuse of hospitality. And he challenged us to think about who our society abuses rather than welcomes. During the course of his sermon, Luke noted that there are a number of highly problematic aspects to the story of Lot's family in Sodom, which were beyond the scope of his sermon on that Sunday. And one of those problems is the way that Lot treats his two daughters. And I want to come back to this story today as we pick up this narrative again. Do you remember the setting? Lot is at home with his family in the city of Sodom, when two angels in disguise come to the door. Lot insists that they stay at his house and gives them dinner. But the men of the city are unhappy with this act of hospitality towards strangers, and so they want Lot to turn out the visitors to the town, the angels in disguise, so that they can be abused and killed. Lot refuses. So far, so good. What a great example of hospitality he is. But then he makes a strange and horrific offer. He says... I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to me, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Sorry, to the, do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, we're not told what the daughters think of this offer, or indeed what their betrothed husbands-to-be, who are also in the house at the time, might think of it. But in any case, the angels save the situation by striking the mob blind and warn Lot to take his family out of Sodom to avoid the coming destruction that God's going to bring on it because of its wickedness. So Lot escapes with his daughters. Their husbands-to-be ridicule his warning and choose to stay behind, presumably to be killed in the destruction of the city. And his wife, on the way out, looks back and famously becomes a pillar of salt. So, when we pick up the story in our reading for this morning, we've got Lot and his daughters alone in the cave, convincing themselves that they and only they are left. And the big threat here, from the point of view of the story's role in the history of the ancient Near East, is that Lot may die without descendants. Being child-free in the ancient world was not a valid lifestyle choice. It was a symptom of being cursed by God. Entire nations depend on this story having an outcome, which is that Lot has two sons. And so the daughters get their father drunk, two nights running, one after the other, they have sex with him and they conceive their two sons. And the interesting question to ask here is whether they were right 
or wrong to do so. Certainly, in most of history's interpretation of this text, Lot's daughters have been criticised for initiating these two incestuous conceptions. Uh, they've also provided plenty of opportunity in Christian art for slightly lurid depictions of two pretty women with their tops off and uh, an old guy. It's true. I've read an article, actually, about the, uh, the, the presentation of this story in, in the history of art. It's, it's a fascinating uh, talk for another day. The text is certainly at pains to show that Lot is so drunk that he is absolved of any personal responsibility for things, although I might note he's clearly not that drunk. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> the interesting thing is that within the text itself, the two daughters are not actually criticised for their actions. Any moral judgement on what happens in the cave is very much left for the reader to decide for themselves. And whilst clearly from a contemporary perspective, we would be very clear in condemning incest and sexual abuse of any kind, from the perspective of the text, things are left rather ambiguous, certainly with regards to whether the daughters are condemned. The first thing to note here, I think, is a, a number of key ways in which Lot's family are highly dysfunctional. The blame for that dysfunction in the text is put very firmly on Lot himself. He is a wannabe patriarch. He's the nephew of Abraham, who was the great patriarch of the Jewish people. And Lot keeps trying to behave in patriarchal ways, a bit like Uncle Abraham, but failing. Like his Uncle Abraham, he entertains angels unawares. Like Uncle Abraham, he offers, uh, he offers to sacrifice his children. But at every turn for him, it doesn't quite work out as it's supposed to. And he comes across as needy, vicious, and vindictive. Lot is not the hero of the Lot narrative. He's the villain. Now, one might expect that from a story that's been preserved within the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tradition. And, um, you know, we could go back to the earlier part of the sermon and say, well, this is them uh, telling nasty stories about the ancestor of their enemies. But taking the story at its own level, the family dynamics under Lot's leadership are frankly horrific. And there is something almost poetic about the fact that the father who offered his daughters for gang rape at the hands of the village mob finds himself ultimately rendered powerless and himself the victim of a sexual assault. But my concern in all of these readings so far is that they are very male-centric. The unnamed daughters remain unnamed and unvoiced. Their actions are mere ciphers for the male stories of patriarchy, progeny, and inheritance. And I think we need to hear the voices of these two women, if we are able, speaking to us through their silence and through their actions. The biblical scholar Sandra Collins says, these are women of survival and invention. 
as heinous and despicable as their actions might be. She suggests that we need to make the effort to read this story from the point of view of the women rather than the men. And that when we do this, they move from being the sort of archetypical evil women who sexually abuse their own father to become women who are themselves the victims of sexual violence and constraint and whose actions are acts of great courage in the face of great threat. Does this reading that Sandra Collins suggests, does it begin to make you feel uncomfortable, I wonder? Are you starting to question and undermine what I'm saying? If so, then good. Because it means that the invitation to hear the text differently is working. And our implicit assumptions about male power are being challenged. Ask yourself for a moment what choice these women had. In a world where it was better to be dead than childless, where their father had threatened them with rape, where their husbands had been killed by God, where, as far as they knew, the only man left alive on the earth was their own father, what other choice does this story leave them with? And who would condemn them? Christian history is full of stories of women being condemned for sexual deviance as female voices are silenced and male voices are privileged. From the tradition of a male clergy to the ongoing evangelical obsession with husbands as the head of their wives, the church that bears Christ's name has an appalling record of female subjugation and gender-based violence. This is not a problem that is out there. It is a problem that is in here. The story we heard earlier of Jesus and the murderous crowd of men and the woman caught in adultery has startling resonances with the story of the daughters of Lot and their father. Yet another powerless woman once again at the mercy of men and a male system. And we could write their story a thousand times in every generation. Lot's daughters continue to face impossible choices in our own time as women have to figure out how to survive in impossible situations with impossible choices forced on them by powerful men. Just last week, I read, the read in The Guardian the story of Nadia Murad, the Iraqi woman who was sold as an ISIS sex slave who has just won the Nobel Peace Prize for her campaigning against human trafficking. At one point in her story, she had an impossible choice to make as to which of these men she was going to become a sex slave to. And it wasn't much of a choice. I do note also that the current president of the United States is on record as saying that his daughter is hot and that if she wasn't his daughter, he'd probably be dating her. We live in a world of violence, misogyny, and objectification of women. And if it is to ever end, then we have to change the story. We have to hear unflinchingly the stories of the past, and we have to learn to rehear them, to allow the suppressed voices of the victims to speak when the tradition has been only hearing the male voices and the male perspective. We have to resist the temptation to scapegoat and condemn 
particularly the victims and the women. And we have to learn to not rush to judgment of those who face impossible choices. Instead, we have to allow these uncomfortable stories to shape us in ways that challenge our own assumptions about power and gender. It has been suggested that these stories should never be read in church. I think they must be read in church. These stories are in our tradition for a reason, and suppressing them is not the answer. As Jonathan Sachs rightly said, we come to know who we are by discovering the story or stories of which we are a part.